This is InsureTech Radio. I'm Connor Sweetman. This week's guest is Michael Crawford of Describe Data. Ten years ago, Michael Crawford started applying machine learning techniques to insurance problems. Let that sink in. Ten years ago. In 2018, he co-founded Describe Data. Describe Data's goal is to use alternative data sources, machine learning and AI to understand insurance risks. Their mission is to empower the bionic underwriters of the future. A few months ago, they pitched this idea of the bionic underwriter to Lloyd's Labs and they were accepted. They were just one of 12 companies from a field of 300 international applicants. So they'll be working out of Lloyd's Labs for the duration of the of the program, and it sounds like a, an amazing opportunity. Michael Crawford, though, started off life as an actuary back in the late 80s, early 90s, but something didn't feel right, and he decided to make a change. He went travelling for a while and ended up joining an IT department. He ended up spending two decades working with software, And now he's back where it all began, working with numbers and data to solve insurance problems. He jokes now that his former actuarial colleagues make fun of his career path, but he says he doesn't care because he's always done something that he loves. Here's Michael. Yeah, I I trained as an actuary um, from quite young and I realised kind of in my mid-twenties that it wasn't going to suit me. I just didn't have the the graph for it. And I wasn't making great progress through the exams because I just wasn't very involved. And I discovered IT. And now this is literally the early 90s, the late 80s, early 90s. And I slowly but surely, surely realized that this is kind of what I wanted to do. And I moved into it. And at the time, it was a suicidal career choice for an actuary. You weren't on any kind of like track. And I eventually got stopped doing the exams in my mid-20s. Was and there a particular moment that that it, it kind of happened. I mean, I, I, I ended up getting into IT almost full-time by accident because I went away. I took some, I left a job. I was working in Norwich Union, which is coincidentally where I met Jerry DeVere on my co-founder like 20, like 30 years ago when we were just teenagers. Um, and I went away for, went away to America for just to travel for a bit. And I came back to Ireland in, I think it was 93. And I just looked, started looking for a job as a trainee actuary because I was two thirds away through my exams and no one was interested in hiring me because I hadn't made any kind of progress and I didn't really have any, it was obvious that I was probably not going to be an actuary. So I got a, I got a contract job eventually just doing some IT stuff for an insurance company. And it was a six week job. And then I got another job after that. And then I got another job after that. And then. Basically, I realized I accidentally had an IT company and I ended up writing quotation systems for insurance companies and Y2K came along and it got bigger and bigger and it doubled in size about every 18 months until the dot-com boom. Your company did. So how did you actually get to start a company then? As I said, I I went in to do a contract job for an insurance company, doing some spreadsheet work for them, building a a test system for them for some of their quotations. And then I did that in double quick time. And then I I basically went in, rebuilt their quotation systems in Pascal and Visual Basic or whatever they had at the time. I could learn languages very quickly. And I got quite a lot of work out of it. And I ended up then getting bigger and then quoting for other work. A lot of people are rewriting systems around Y2K and it got quite big. We had a company, an office down in the Keys, four or five people working for me, 
contracts in various insurance companies and you know it, it accidentally so i got i got taught the i i taught myself the it game and i employed some very very good developers along the way who then taught me an awful lot about um it and how it works and something chris sandiland said uh, you know last podcast was um, he basically worked with agile teams and he saw how agile you know i worked and how it could be very profitably kind of like employed for insurance companies and i'd seen from working with really good developers, how they had more or less debugged the development process and how engineering teams have had actually put structure on very, very difficult projects. And I realized this is a really good way to run any kind of projects. And I knew we could basically employ that back into insurance companies as well. Yeah. So what? So what, the dot com crash you mentioned. Oh uh, yeah, what I mean, well, I, I basically I joined up with a guy who basically who uh, had a company called I think it was Finance to You dot com, and we were going to do uh, build to put on an online insurance brokerage. And he put a lot of money into it. He had an ins- I think he had a, a recruitment company that was making a lot of money and made a few percentage of it. I joined it. It was just, I mean, it honestly was a poster child of what not to do. I still to this day call it my real world MBA. It was probably five times more useful than a, an MBA and probably about 10 times the cost. So give me an example. <laughs> what, what should you not do? Hire... You know, I'm trying to think. There's there so many things you shouldn't do. Do things with new technology in a new way with a team that doesn't know what they're doing. Um, spend more. You know, spend money. Use money as a way to like fix projects. Uh, just in general, I also taught me about how not to market something, and also choose your business partners really well. You need to choose people who are. You know, very have a very strong work ethic, who have a very strong moral code, who are very, who, you know, basically when you look around, um, you know, and you're working twenty four seven, they're not filling their socks with money and stuff like that, and trying to run away. So that you do, you meet, you, you don't meet an awful lot of people like that in the insurance world, in the actuarial world, because the moral code to get in is very high. But when you start dealing outside in a different in different environments, you meet a lot of people who are basically just maybe don't have the same moral moral standpoint that you have and that's actually quite an eye-opener for someone coming into business that not everyone's going to be as you know as as upstanding as you think they are well yeah because that's probably an assumption i i would have naively made yeah i mean i'm sure if you work from people who come say to the building industry or i mean software industry as well it's a young industry and it's not a it's not a profession so you know if people come and say i can do this you generally believe them but a lot of times a lot of software companies can't and they generally get into places because i've seen them and and they they um you know, and they busk it and they get by. And that's, you know, that's a that's a valid business model to some extent. In, with some, so it's very important to choose businesses uh, that you're going to work with that don't do that. And mm-hmm. it's quite hard to do. I mean, again, I think Chris said in the last podcast, you know, a lot of companies are doing stuff with Airmail and II. And he said it's really hard for them to pick who's real and who isn't. So what happened after that company? Um, again, dot-com boom happened. I ended up starting another company a few months later with a bunch of guys who had fallen out of a telco. And they'd gone to a telco company. There were two marketing guys. And they'd said, what we need to do is we want to basically turn your customers into, into consumers of financial products. So, you know, turn the Vodafone customer base into buying car insurance from them. And that got crushed by the dot-com. We scaled that down by a, a very a huge factor. And we went into a couple of companies and said, we'll provide financial services to, say, things like PwC, Oracle, the health service. And we went to the insurance providers and said, look, we've got PwC, Oracle. As customers, we want a good deal on a mortgage, we want a good deal on a car insurance. So we built a, I built a website which uh, plugged into all the uh, very new internal kind of portals, HR portals that these companies had. And 
uh, kind of internal intranets, as they were called at the time. And so you could basically buy, you could make a buy the, buy these products, and you get you know, you know one percent deal off a mortgage, which at the time was you know, and that 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 literally was a virtuous circle. We just went from more and more companies, the bigger companies, and then we went to more and more um, kind of providers and got better and better deals. And we just because we were doing them over the web, we could just put them onto the website very quickly. Mortgages were very big back then. This was two thousand and three, two thousand and two, and it just went. I think I left about two thousand and four, two thousand and five, and the company got sold to Irish Life. Wow, so, great. So that's um, so that was again that was a very interesting experience because I got to develop technology from the ground up. So I was effectively the CTO, which was the, the, the you do everything there. You were as a startup. We built the, our own software. We ha- we had to buy our own servers. We had to put it into Colo. So you really learn an awful lot if you're crying in front of a web server at three o'clock in the morning in a freezing cold facility in the middle of nowhere. Um, you learn those lessons that technology, you know, it's very hard to learn. You don't get that education very easily. And I worked with two guys who were pure marketing guys. One guy was ex-Diageo, one guy was ex-Irish Mortgage Corporation, and they were geniuses, and I learned a lot of marketing stuff off them. Yeah. Yeah, and just watching the importance of good marketing and how important selling is and how presentation is, stuff like that. You mentioned it there just in the previous one, you know, you learned what not to do for marketing, and then... In this in in this business, it seems to be the opposite. Yeah. So, what what was the difference? They were just very good at marketing. They knew how to present things. They knew how to present ideas in a way that people would accept them. Um, and because you know, if you look at Diageo, Diageo is a marketing company that just happens to sell you know alcohol, but they're very very good at it. So they were very good at basically writing business plans. They wrote a fabulous business plan. They got the, I think it was the partners of PwC were the first kind of, were the first investors in the company and that got us into PwC. They knew how to, they knew they were, they knew how to operate. Mm. It was a really, really powerful lesson to watch. They knew very little about technology and what they were very good at. They were saying, look, leave that with me. I will fix this. We will build it. Uh, they were, and so they were, but they weren't micromanagers at all. So they were really good at knowing what they didn't know, which is a really important thing. And hiring, I would say this, hiring good people who can execute. That is a really important thing to do. Because you see that a lot in business where they, you know, they, they, they either know the tech or they know the business or they know, you know, or they know, um, but it's very few that you know both. Yeah. So that was very useful. Um, so what happened after that? This is getting to be a long kind of. Yeah, this is, uh, this is like a virtual CV, but yeah, uh, that's fine. So, well, actually, uh, well, after that, I, I am. I was going to ask probably a better question. Yeah. So, um, so uh, how did Describe Data come about? Describe Data came about. I'm going to start five, six years back. Um, I had after that. I'm going I'm to have to probably put a seag into this. I left that company in 2005, 2004, and I set up a, a, a bridal company with my wife using the internet, and that was quite successful until it wasn't because the economy collapsed in 2009. And we both worked really, really hard. We ran it on the internet, uh, and we went to Barcelona for a year and ended up staying for five. Uh, we had a small kid at the time, and we just had, you know, we, it was during the financial crisis. I came home to Ireland in 2013 with the idea of, of getting a job, and I took a, a contract actuarial job, and I started going to meetups uh, in the evening about data and technology because I kind of knew the time had come, and I was kind of very, I was very familiar with it, but I was also intrigued. And I met Mick Cooney, one of the other co-founders of, of Describe Data, and he was giving a three-part lecture on three hours long, each one of them on tech Bayesian techniques using kind of open source software. And about five minutes into that first lecture, when I, which I got into, there's about me and four other people in the room. I just had that literally, oh my God, insurance is so, I'm going to use it, screwed in the long term because they are not doing any of this sort of stuff. 
It's the technology's free. The hardware's commodity. These guys are doing this out of their bedrooms. You don't need to be NASA anymore, or, or, or you know, or, or you know, a, a government to do this. Insurance is the poster child for using this technology. So I set up a company called Applied AI um, with uh, a guy called Jonathan Cedar, and I was working for Zurich at the time um, on a contract for the minding their quotations department for, for someone who was on maternity leave. So I had eight actuaries working for me, just basically writing code. And I went into them. They did a they did a town hall meeting on um, uh, data analytics and technology. They wanted to use more of it, and I went. I said I've just come from these meetups. I went and talked to the IT manager and said I can do that. And they basically said, When can you start? And that's effectively how we started, not described data, but applied AI. We realized very quickly that we weren't going to get very far in London, in Dublin. So we moved everything to London. And um, that's basically how we kind of end up setting up described data. We described data kind of came out of realizing from moving to London and looking at what the, the, the actual, what people were looking for. We realized we could sell data analytics consulting into the insurance industry quite easily, but it was going to be a hard slog and you were constantly being a consultant. It was more of a sales job. And we realized that the product way was the way to go. So we looked at a number of product ideas that we'd worked on over the years and we said, right, let's let's incorporate a company and basically just do pure insurance related data products. So that's effectively how how Describe Data kind of came about. And it's a long, long kind of, it took a long time to get there. You're looking at that that story I told you basically took 20 years. So it's like Eddie Cantor says, it takes 20 years to become an overnight success. I'd love to think we were a success, but it, there's a lot of, there were a lot of, lot of kind of strings and a lot of things that had to be done and a lot of lessons that had to be learned to get to where we are. And that's how we've how we've got to it. Yeah, it's quite a bit of variety. Like yeah. going from actuarial to setting up a bridal business yeah. to setting up this. Like. Well, the bridal business. My wife is a very very good fashion designer. She had a you know a great little business going on, making wedding dresses for friends and family and blah blah blah. And I just said, look, the in- none of the bridal shops are using internet because it was like two thousand three, two thousand four. Google AdWords has come out. I put together a website. You know, I basically took a really good bridal website from a woman called Bri- Vera Wang. Did something very similar to it. Um and fired up Google AdWords. You could buy AdWords for nothing. Within about three months, we had 5% of the Irish bridal market. You know, it was just, it was, we were in the right place at the right time with the right product. That was an eye opener because, you know, yeah. Um, and if you get things right and things go well if you're in the product market, you know, it's a hockey stick. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so like when it comes to describe data, you're now in the, the startup world and there's kind of a lot of idiosyncrasies and certain cliches maybe about the startup world. Well, have you watched Silicon Valley at all? <laughs> too close to the bone for us. Well, w- one of the things I, I've always very, very curious about is pitching. Mm. Uh, and like you were just back from pitching the Lloyd's Labs to get in there. Um, but tell me, like, what, what have you learned about pitching over the years? A lot, you know, and it's been a long journey. Um, I mean, pitching is something, I mean, if you have a startup, but what is it, first of all? Pit, I mean, in terms of pitching, it depends. Yeah. I mean, pitching is basically selling your product or idea to people who are either going to buy your product or idea or invest in your company. I mean, it's a general sales tool. If you have a startup company or any company of your own, and you're, you have to be prepared or be able to sell it. You, and you are the main salesperson. And if you're not comfortable with that or have someone who is on board on the senior team who you can do that, don't do a startup. It's about sales. It's about convincing people. You can have the best idea in the world. We had this problem with uh, Describe Data with the, and, you know, a couple of kind of the consultancy work that we've done is that we couldn't, we knew we could do great work. We knew we just could not get people to believe us. 
And it's taken us a long time to pitch, like to figure out how do you sell high tech into an industry that is not very technically you know, aware at the level that, say, someone like a Facebook or a Google would be. And that is a very hard, to learn that skill is quite important. Uh, and one of the things we've done over the years is that we've pitched, we've honed our pitches down. They've got shorter. There's been a lot, there's a lot more space in them. We use very, very strong graphics and very few words. We've just learned to be a lot more economical and a lot more, a lot more convincing. What's some, like, what's some bad advice that you hear thrown around? Um, in terms of pitching? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, this is, it's quite funny because you do see a lot of decks because we do a lot of meetups and some, one of the things I think people do in deck is they just try and get all the information onto the page and like, A, people don't really care. B, they can't read it from like, unless you're on the first row that, and it just looks crazy. Sometimes it's Mies van der Rohe, you know, it's all the way less is definitely more. You know, it, but it takes quite a lot of confidence to realize that because as a salesperson and you've got a great idea, you want to tell people about it and you want to get, you want to tell them all the precious things that you can do. And honestly, that's not the most efficient way to tell them. Sometimes it's like, sometimes it might be long lines of here's an idea. This is what we're doing. We're doing it with these people. If you don't jump on this train, you're not going to, you know, you're going to miss out. That's it. You know, that sounds counterintuitive. You know, you don't have to tell them an awful lot. You just more or less. And that's. We've kind of learned that along the way, and it's been quite a hard. We just did a the Lloyd's Lab pitch we did, I'd say, is the pinnacle of, of all the stuff we've learned because we were in the Lloyd's Lab six months ago. And, you know, we did a relatively became, you know, we got through 300 companies to get there. Uh, we got down to the final 20. There were 10 places. We became 11th. We were put on a reserve list. So we were very close. And we basically completely changed our pitching style from being telling them all about what we were doing to basically, here's a general idea of what we're doing. Here's our product. Here's who we're working with. Get on this train. We want to work with you. Thanks. It was re- And it's really to the point. And it was, you know, it was almost brutally kind of, um, the impact was kind of pretty hard. And it was a very different style and something that you had to get very comfortable with. And we got a lot of advice from people we know had been through pitching com- competitions, people who've been through very serious um, incubators themselves with, you know, where they, I've heard with a great one, one uh, person who helped us a lot. He'd come through, I'd heard from uh, Eamon Carey, who was the, the MD of Techstars. He said, yeah, those people, they, they come out, those guys can pitch. They got really, their, their media training is amazing. So we got a friend to come in, Parag Sheeran, actually, who was giving the talk with us. He came and basically took our, our pitch to pieces. And he, as I said, he took, he took about 50% of the words out of it, left 90% of the information and made it five times better. It was just remarkable what he did in an afternoon. Well, and, and you mentioned pitch competitions there. I was always a bit confused by them. Is there anything, do people get investment out of a pitch competition? Yeah, you can do. I mean, yeah. I mean, we get, we've been ones where we pitched, uh, you know, and usually they're quite artificial because they're like, tell us everything you, you do in five minutes. This, you know, Abraham Lincoln has a great, has a great kind of, I think it's a apocryphal quote. It's like, you know, you want me to speak for an hour, I'll do it now. You know, you want me to speak for five minutes, I'll need a week. It's so true. Like, it's really difficult. If you've got, you know, because you can't really speak quickly. You've got, you've probably got a hundred words a minute, which is actually very slow. It's probably like this. It sounds wrong, you know, and, but you've got to get, you know, so you have 500 words to explain what you do. It's like the ultimate serial packet competition. Yeah. Um, so that's actually quite di- tricky. So we've done it a lot now. So it's actually quite, it gets like anything else. The more you do it, the easier it gets and it gets exponentially easily, easier. So now, it, you know, and because also pitching, when you build up pitches for companies and, and, you know, I've got a 10 minute pitch or a five minute pitch, they're almost like company assets. 
We have them in the bank. Someone came, we've, I have to give a push now to a VC this afternoon. And we're going to give the Lloyd's Lab one. You know, I've, I'll just go up and do it. Yeah. It's a really, really powerful thing to be able to go and say, here's what we do in five minutes. And you are going to have no literally ambiguity about what we do and what we want of you at the end of that. Yeah. That's a very powerful asset to have in a company. Is that something that you had um, worked on before or is this new since described data? Well, this no, it's very new. I mean, we've done it in the last kind of like year, seriously. I did a lot of drama in school quite, oh. quite, and after in college. So I'm not really that – standing up in front of people and talking and learning lines is not, a, is not an alien thing to me. Yeah. Um, it's also – if you're actually doing a lot of pitching, drama training is very good. Things like breathing, using pauses, actually using space to actually emphasize stuff, you know, and you think I'm wasting, you know, my, in the Lloyd's lab, what we did was we basically got on the stage and the first 10 seconds, we said nothing. So you're actually using, and you've got one slide with two words on it and you're looking at the audience that it, it's deeply unsettling to be on the receiving end of that. And it's really easy to do once you've done it a few times, yeah. but those sort of techniques that, you know, we, you would have been taught in drama, very, very useful. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I find that uh, doing interviews, for example, yeah. if there is a bit of silence, your natural inclination is to jump in. Yeah. yeah. And uh, whereas the more powerful thing to do is to wait mm. for the interview subject to say something. Because yeah. chances are they feel, they feel just as uncomfortable as you are. Yeah. And they're probably about to say something really profound. We, we did a practice pitch with two people the day before. Um, they said, come around to our, our office and we put on one. The girl sat down and I started the pitch and I, I literally about seven seconds in, she was like, well, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, and I said, that's exactly what I want. I want you to feel that I've forgotten my lines and you've, you know, you want, you know, and you broke, you broke for the door first. I said, that's what I want you to feel. And again, we left that. We did the same at the end, the other end of it. And we, there were a lot of ideas that we kind of brought through. And we used the same words over and over again. All these things you learn just by literally you know, we have a, a great, uh, I think you saw the talk where I talked about data science and, and there's a slide in it with Sideshow Bob just treading on lots of rakes over and over again. That's what, that's how you learn to do this, you know. Isn't it funny that, you know, like you're pitching something that's, you know, a highly technical subject yeah. that you, you know, and you've all intellectualized the subject to no end. And then it comes down to kind of basic human emotions uh, yeah. and fear of silence and all these ba- and drama. I'm not you know. mentioning technology, to be honest with you, too, <laughs> because technology is ultimately people talk about it, they, but it's quite difficult. People don't have a a good grasp on it. So if you try and science is very hard to sell. Yeah. It really is. So you need to basically say, look, here's what we're doing. We're using a lot of technology to do it. Don't worry about that. We've got that covered. This is the slide that tells you who we are and where we come from. So, but this is what it does. Simples. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, and it's, it's really hard to do that when you say, well, look how much we've, we've done all this incredible work. Our inclination is to dive down into things and you know, fetishize the technology. But we don't do that when we're trying to talk to people because we just know it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it would work when we, we go to meetup groups and we talk about technology. That's, the, that's where we do that. Mm. Quietly behind closed doors. Be, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, all, like every other good fetish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me about Describe Data. What, what does your business do? Uh, Describe Data basically uses data sources, mostly new ones that come from the internet or you know, industry. And we use technology, AI, machine learning. And we use that basically together to arm underwriters with a superior understanding of risk. That's it. That's it in a sentence. And that's, again, there's a lot going on behind that, but there's a lot of data that comes from various different sources. 
the the internet now means there's an awful lot of data online. There's an awful lot of data sources that are now available. The problem is you can get them, no problem, because you can scrape them down or you can download them. A lot of them are massive. A lot of them are unstructured. So this is where technology comes into. So how do I turn my qualitative data into quantitative insight? And then basically we, that's what we do. And at what stage in the unwriting process would uh, do you guys step in? Well, basically when people at the start, people come in and say, look, I've got a deal. I'm looking to cy- underwrite the cyber insurance for a chain of hotels in the States. Right. That's, that's what, what, what can I tell you? What can you tell me about the vulnerability of these people, this type of business to this type of thing? Yeah. Now I'm just using that as a, it might be DNO. Yeah. We've, we've done a lot of work on DNO. There's a huge amount of, um, a data in, D- in DNO yeah, cases. The publicly traded Com- data. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in terms of things like, you know, Stanford have a massive corpus of the, of, of, um, all the court cases for securities class action suits, like, and what was said and what the claims were, et cetera. But it's huge. Again, you can start looking at, so DNO is traditionally written, you know, where, what type of company it is, what's the size of it, how many employees, locations, very simple. But actually, there's an awful lot of other stuff out there. There's an awful lot of financial data on these companies, their filing data, their, you know, who are the directors, what, what, what's their probity, what's their background, massive amounts of other kind of the data we can link together and give you a, a very different way of looking at it, but that's, you know, you can actually start saying, actually, this type of company tends to get into scrapes quite often, but they're not actually that bad. Or it could be this company doesn't, but when it does, it's an absolute nightmare, that sort of thing. So it's about yeah. avoiding the bad, the really bad. We call it the good, the bad and the ugly. You know, look at the good deals. I will take that deal at that price because I know it's overpriced from my understanding of the risk. The bad deal be being like, actually, I don't really want to take that deal because it's overpriced, it's underpriced or something. But there are other reasons that I'm going to write that deal. And then there's the, the ugly. There's that I don't want that at any cost. Like that's 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 a that's 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 just going to be outsized risk. That's just going to take me out. So if you can do that, you that's the that. That is a very, very useful thing. We have this kind of technique, we call it the bionic underwriter, mm-hmm. which is basically we get a better, stronger, faster. And, you know, what we can do is make you understand your risks better, faster, and understand, make those decisions. Make more of those decisions, make less of the bad ones. I mean, it really is a problem. You're dealing with insurance. You know, probability is fundamentally at the heart of it all. Mm-hmm. So you want, that's what you do. It's like playing poker. You know, stay at the table, keep making it. And then when you can make money, make money. Yeah. And it's funny though, like it is about probability, but there is so much subject- subjectivity yeah. in the underwriting process. And so. that's what we're trying to take out. Yeah. And take out, I mean, it'll always be there. I mean, we're, we're, our classic, you know, first kind of five seconds in Lloyd's was, you know, rumors of the underwriter's demise have been greatly exaggerated. There will always be underwriters in, in the market because they're the ones that are making the decision. And it's a commercial decision as well it's not just based on numbers obviously there are deals that you'll just get no you know i'm not taking a fiver to you know to ensure like that oil rig mm. but there are deals where you you know you think actually i'm not you know that's questionable but there are other things like it might get a deal down the road or i owe this guy a favor or you know that sort of stuff we want to be able to be able to make those decisions in a much more quantitative manner we also look at portfolios of risk so we actually say look You've got an existing portfolio. We can actually take that and then put it through. We've built a model of the world. Actually, look, you've got a dangerous aggregation here. But actually, you could. You, he doesn't. You, why do, they're, they're not correlated. You're actually all right. Actually, do you find, actually, if you look over here, you've got, you've got here's an opportunity for you. You've, if you took some more of this, then you might, you know, you, you cut, they would be anti-correlated with that. So we can actually start making, using the technology to say, actually, you need to be writing less of this and more of that. Yeah. So that's a quite an interesting. So, 
having that bionic underwriter kind of idea, just making them making them faster and better at what they're doing. That's what we'd like to do. And is it always external data that you use, or do you ever use internal? Well, we, I mean, because we're working outside insurance companies generally, we've started with external data. The real secret source is basically, I think, the real power of it is when it comes in where possible to put the insurer's information on top of it. Yeah, they tend to be quite, you know, very, very, very um, protective of their data. Um, so that's something that you know we've done it a few times with life insurance companies here and stuff. But we'd like to, you know, we'd like to get into some places where we can say, look. Once we've proved it in, it's like, right, now let's put your data and augment that with it because you've got loads of it. Yeah, but even just mm. like their uh, loss experience. Yeah, they're absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. Because at least then I suppose mm. it allows you to test yeah. uh, your assumptions yeah. and maybe put a… There are certain areas though of which we think in cyber where the actual the company's information themselves actually is not going to be that useful because it's constantly evolving. Mm. And, and, it's so very, and it's so new. And it's so new. I mean, basically yeah. you go to everyone and they're all doing something slightly different. They're yeah. all writing. So it's actually… You know, if you're looking at something like DNO or, you know, you, you know, we're absolutely, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you, it's going to be brilliant because you have lots and lots and lots of risks. Mm. What we're trying to look at as well is some of the more unusual risks. You know, there's a lot of, the, there are quite a few companies out there doing things with, you know, like SME and, you know, commercial stuff and, you know, personal stuff. Um using bulk data, um, you know, from, say, the company's offices and stuff like that. But there's very few people doing things with things like what we're doing with, like, things like terrorism and, and you know, uh, aerospace and DNO and cyber is, you know, people are doing a lot of cyber. And one of the reasons we got into cyber was because when we went around and talked to everybody, it was very apparent, apparent to us. No one, everyone was doing something slightly different and they, no one was really, no one really had much of an idea. They were all kind of like, just almost trying to grasp at straws. We thought, this here's, can we go away and can we look at cyber? And we went away and did some work on our own and in terms of looking at frequency and severity just from the internet, from stuff we can get off the internet and then comparing it against some of the companies that got quite good returns on what's actually happened. And we realized we could get very, very, we could get without even looking, just looking at the kind of aggregate data that insurance companies are, and Lloyds are producing on that and looking what we can basically pull off the internet in terms of, the two models are basically very, very similar. So we can, if I can model what you're, I'm modeling what, what an actual company's doing is experiencing via the returns they're putting on it. I'm saying, I'm saying I'm taking this data from the internet using some uh, machine learning uh, on it to basically turn it into quantitative information and then looking at using, building a model on that. Those two models are more or less agreeing. So all of a sudden it's like, I actually don't need that company's data. Plus this is global. This is very idiosyncratic and mm. very, 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 very kind of specific to a specific company. So that's actually quite powerful. Yeah. And I think particularly in cyber or any new product or potential new product where you know, the underwriters say if they if they never done, did cyber before, mm. uh, or if they never underwritten any class of business, mm. they could uh, probably assess with much more conviction yeah. uh, than otherwise uh, of say of launching into a new yeah. sector or something like that. But there's always, I think, there's always going to be that subjective. You know, you know, people who know the business, you know, they're going to this. A tool is going to be really good because it will reinforce what you think, but also it might tell you things that you don't know. But I think you're also going to have to say, actually, my gut on this is that you know I'm going to take this risk. I think you're never going to get the underwriter out of the loop, mm. and it's been very kind of like you know, I think it's been quite you know. A lot of people have said that over the last few years, and I just I just don't see that happening with the more the more kind of idiosyncratic, exotic stuff that's going on, the terrorism, you know, the the high end kind of kind of the cyber stuff. You know, it's just it's just going to be part of the process. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, the role's going to change. I think We're talking to a few of the MDs around. I mean, they are, they know that the the people they're going to have to hire to be on the writers in ten years are going to have to have a very different skill set, more along the lines of what we're you know, comfortable with large amounts of data, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so uh, that's actually an area that I'm mm. really interested in, mm. and a lot of the the genesis of this podcast is actually mm. well, is trying to think about what would a unwriter, broker, claim sander do in the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, what's your My view on that? on that is, I mean, you know, they're going to have to, we're building tools to help underwriters basically take a lot of data out of, you know, out of wherever it comes from and build quantitative, you know, basically build up an underwriter idea of risk selection and risk pricing from it. Um, I think those, that's probably the way it's going to go. I think people are very fundamentally, a lot more technology is going to be involved. Um, I had a great conversation the other day with a woman and she was saying she used to work at pricing cyber and when they used to price cyber, I said, what did we used to do? I said, we used to literally just search the internet for cyber cyber events. She's got four or five of them and she'd look at the size of them and then, you know, basically build up you know, and that was it. Basically, said, That's, that is essentially what we're doing. What We're just doing it on a scale that is just, you know, global and we're pulling down massive amounts of information from various security websites and various kind of people, various kind of uh, forums where people talk about this sort of stuff so we have a much better idea we're doing that on steroids at scale in real time mm. that's the way it's going to go yeah so it'll be underwriters in, instead of i suppose looking at proposal forms yeah. they might just mm. get the name of a company yeah. uh and then put it through an engine like yours absolutely and, talk yeah. to and you'll take bloomberg stuff you know, we say yeah. we found that you know directors shareholdings um holdings tend to, uh, within you know um matter skin directors having the game have a massive proportion of uh, effect on this this correlated with that has a will, you know, it, it, this is highly indicative of a company that is a good risk. And what we found from things like DNO is that when you actually start looking at, you know, DNO versus, um, you know, the companies that get affected by it and then cyber attack, you know, if you've got, if you've got a very clean record here, chances are you've got very good cyber hygiene. You know, you're, you're on top of your processes. You've got, you know, you've got people in place that are taking care of all of that. That's actually, so you get, you, you build up a very big picture then of, of you know, and you get kind of like kind of uh, correlated bits of information, which is actually very useful. And that's actually one of the, the things we kind of, kind of surprised us over the last kind of year of just finding this sort of stuff. Great. Um, and so what do you see as kind of the challenges for your own business then in the next little while? Scale, growing. I mean, there's, we're quite small at the moment. We've got some good ideas. We know how to basically, we're in the process of, process of basically implementing a product. Um, we're writing it basically to be delivered in the cloud via API if people want, or we'll put a front end on for it. We basically need to basically get that into a, a number of companies, as many companies as possible. So we, we're probably going to have to hire a sales function, which again is definitely going to be a learning fun- curve for us, but we're aware of that. There's some great people here here in Dogpatch Labs. There's some great people in here who've basically built kind of very similar businesses in, say, fast-moving consumer goods, sold them on. They have an incredible amount of experience, just in, and they've been really useful in saying, you know, when should we hire salespeople? And they, were, they, you know, they were saying, you should be, a, you know, like I said earlier, we are the salespeople, but a proper enterprise-level salesperson is probably what we need next. Mm. Yesterday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and we're going to have to incentivize them very well. And yeah. We're probably going to have to sell the company to them, mm. you know, in terms of you know, what we can offer them. And you know, yeah. That must be an interesting thing because obviously, you know, most people will go to work in an established company. So mm. uh, they'll probably just go on and look at the website and mm. they'll see the ads on the TV. So, yeah, recruiting for yeah, your this stage of business is Yeah, yeah. I mean, we recruit out of it. I get called by recruiters left, right and center to either to, you know, to hire or whatever. And all I say is that we hire out of our network mm. at the moment because we know enough people because we're quite, we all got very, very different skill sets and we're all quite sociable. 
but I think you need to know. I think I know probably the person I'd like to hire as the sales guy for our company. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure we could afford him because, oh, wow. but he's, you know, um, but I think he would be an absolute asset, you know. Uh, and I, again, if this company goes well, the reason we're all doing it, we're not young people, you know, we're not 25, you know, we're all, we're all kind of in our fifties, mixing his forties. And we, you know, we understand that, you know, we're probably not going to do this forever. You know, we'd like, we have a kind of like, we have a probably eight to nine, eight year maximum kind of viewpoint. I'm probably looking at five, six. We need to basically scale this up. But if we can get this right, the the upside is huge. And would your plan be to exit quickly or? Um, we plan would be to run the business until it's profitable. I mean, we'd always, honestly, if someone came and offered me, you know, a lot of money for the company in the morning, yes, I'd sell it because, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, but. I'd like to get as far away from that as possible. You know, it'd be mm. nice to have a company. The whole idea is build a good company that generates cash and that basically has a good product and people like. Then you've got a lot of you've got a lot of first world problems after that. <laughs> um, well, we kind of it's kind of full circle. You know, yeah. uh, we t- we started with that quote about mm. doing what you love. Yeah. Um, have you any uh, parting words for our audience? Yeah, um, I get asked by a lot of actuaries now, and I've talked about this in kind of colleges like UCD and LSE, where we've talked to you know, come and talk about technology to actuaries, actuarial students, and I usually usually use it as an opportunity to say to them, you know, the world is changing at a scale that you couldn't believe because I I worked for an insurance company in the nineties, early nineties, and, and then I went back and I worked briefly for an actuarial consultancy in London, and I walked in. 20 years later, and they were using Outlook and Excel. It's just the number of the version number had changed. Nothing really changed. It had changed in that role fundamentally. And as outside the world had changed totally. And I think with, the, you know, I always say to the kit, the, to the to students, so think of the mobile phone you had five years ago compared to the mobile phone you have now. That's what you're dealing with. Unless, so basically don't be afraid to do something different and look at things differently because you're going to have to be quite resilient over the next 10 to 15 years because the world of professional work is changing. Um, the traditional actuarial roles will become much more regulatory. The quotes I hear all the time are people are not hiring actuaries anymore. They want to hire data scientists. And that's from very senior people because actuaries are very expensive by comparison. So do something, do something different. Do something you love. Because if you don't do something you love, life is very long. You know, you've got to skip to work every day. Um, that's it. I mean, enjoy en- enjoy your career and take risk. It's it's great fun. I have to say, working for yourself is an absolute. Um, I just it's a trip. I mean, I, I I come in here every day, and I kind of was even this morning. I hadn't been here for four or five days because we we're in London, and I was walking up the stairs, thinking I am the luckiest man alive. Yeah. It's a great way to mm. be going through life. Yeah, I really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I really. I mean, I, there are much better. We could be much better paid than we are now. All of us. But we're all we're all here every day at eight o'clock, and you know we we all work stupid hours. But we just I can't imagine doing anything else. Brilliant! Thanks very much. Best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, Michael. Cheers.